Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3, we are concluding this short book we've been in, and it uh, just so happens that uh, next week is Reformation Sunday, so we'll, we'll have a message on some aspect of the Reformation, Sola Scriptura, probably. Um, and then after that, we will uh, begin a new book in the New Testament, we'll, we'll go through Second uh, Peter uh, together. So those are some of the things that are coming up, but um, this morning we're going to conclude, as I said, this book of Zephaniah, and we're essentially concluding on the same theme that we, we looked at last week, only you know, as we are seeing and as Zephaniah is speaking of all of the things that are about to come in the near future, Judah, in the more distant future future as well, things in terms of judgment, but then also things in terms of promises, and a new world, and a new kingdom, and God dwelling in the midst of his people. We, we end this book on a, on a note of rejoicing, and a call to, to praise and to be hopeful in the Lord. And so, as I said, we'll conclude looking at uh, verse 14, and then we'll read together down to the end in verse 20. So Zephaniah here, chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, right under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. And I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Let's go again to the Lord. Well, Father, as we've seen through the book of Zephaniah, as we've even read earlier from Psalm 37, there are certainly seasons, times in the world that are marked by great suffering, affliction, the prosperity of the wicked. 
There are times that are marked by darkness. The day of the Lord in judgment. And yet even through these times, even through the knowledge that these times will come, Your Word calls Your people to rejoice. And we are to rejoice because we are able through Your Word to look beyond the dark times and to see the light that is ahead. We are to be, of all people, the most hopeful people. Because You have given to us sweet promises about the work You're doing in the world and about the great day to come when You will dwell in the midst of Your people. And so Lord, I pray for all of us here this day, that our lives would be ultimately marked by joy and celebration in You. That we would be a people who, even in the midst of sufferings, can rejoice in all things. Lord, I pray that this would happen as we look to Christ, as we grab a hold of the promises of the Gospel, the promises made long ago through your prophets. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The magisterial reformer, John Calvin, once preached a sermon to his Genevan congregation on Paul's words in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. Where Paul there is speaking of one of his co-laborers, his servant as he calls him, a servant in the gospel, uh, (laughs) Onesimus. We were talking last night. (laughs) I'll, I'll just, this is a little side remark. We were reading last night and I could not for the life of me get words out. (laughs) I was mixing and all kinds of things going on and I was saying, I wonder if that will happen tomorrow. And sure enough, (laughs) sure enough, it came. Oh, man. Onesiphorus. It was a man who served him also in Rome. And Paul says of him in 2 Timothy 1, verse 18, he says, May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And then, commenting on the phrase, on that day, Calvin exhorted the church and he said this. He said, let us learn to stretch out our hope even to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For if this hope do not reign in our hearts and sit as a mistress there, we shall faint every minute of an hour. Before all things, let us learn to fasten our eyes and stay them upon this last day and upon this coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And know we that then there is a crown that is prepared for us. That that, that quote there, there was a particular phrase that really sort of stood out to me. It was that that phrase where he says that we are to stretch out our hope. I think it's a fitting phrase even as we think about our text this morning. The Christian hope in particular is not and cannot be something 
that is dependent on this present life. It cannot be dependent on the world as it is now or even on the world as it could potentially be in just a generation or two. That is a short-term kind of hope. It is a fading, fickle, unstable kind of hope. It is ultimately determined by the winds that are flowing in the world. And if things appear to be going well, well then you're, you're mighty hopeful. But if things appear to be going terribly, then you, you grow despondent. You go into periods of despair. The Christian hope is not to be a hope like that. It is to be rooted ultimately in what is certain and unchangeable. It is to be rooted in God's Word and in His promises. And His promises include all manner of things that we may never see fulfilled in our own life. It includes that may be in the much further distant future. Perhaps hundreds or maybe even a thousand years down the road. It is not the case that we will never see them. We will see those promises fulfilled. We will see them fulfilled with our very own eyes and we will receive from the Lord what He has promised, but it may not be in this present life. Or just to give another uh, biblical example of what I'm talking about here, I want you to think for a moment about King David. God made promises to David. God made a covenant with David. And he made a promise that one of his offspring would sit on his throne forever. And that, of course, was not a promise that David saw fulfilled in his own life. It would be fulfilled at a much later time with the coming of Christ some 1,000 years later. But it was a promise, nonetheless, that David could trust in because God had spoken it. And he could trust in it to such an extent that it shaped his very own life in the present. Even though it may be so, so much further in the future, it still shaped the way he viewed his own life and the things that were happening in the world. It shaped how he understood the nations. It shaped how he understood the place of Zion, the city of God, the city of Jerusalem in the world. David viewed all opposition to his throne, all opposition to Zion and to the anointed king of Israel as ultimately a foolish endeavor because it would be an attempt to thwart the will of God, which can never ultimately be thwarted. And so he wrote in Psalm chapter 2, verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. And then he adds in verse 4 of Psalm 2, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
point is that how David viewed his own life and the events taking place in the world was based on promises that would not ultimately be fulfilled for many, many years. And yet, it still shaped how he viewed the events that were taking place in the present. It is foolish to attempt to destroy Zion. It is foolish to attempt to destroy the Davidic throne because the Lord has made a promise. He will establish the throne of David forever. And so any attempt by any nation or any people to overthrow that throne at any period of time will ultimately prove to be a failure. Because God has fixed His King. He has established His King in Zion. Because God had spoken these promises, David could live his life with much joy and confidence and hopefulness even despite the many challenges to his throne that he would face. I think this is a needed reminder for us as well. We, of course, live in a time of great moral confusion and upheaval. There is little trust in our institutions. Many parents fear the kind of world that their children or their grandchildren are going to grow up in. There are ideological battles that are being waged on every front. The most foundational pillars of a society are all being undermined. And for many people, as they look around at the world and our rapidly changing society, they can grow angry and bitter over what they are seeing. Many Christians even are are rightly disturbed and concerned not just about the things that are happening in our country out there, but the things that are happening in our own backyard, in our own community. But the problem that arises is that these people and these Christians as well fix all of their attention on all of the things that are going wrong, all of the sins that sinful man is celebrating, and it disturbs them, concerns them, consumes all of their thoughts, and they grow cynical, bitter, and angry. In many ways, they become very hopeless. And they have no joy. And I think that the passage that we're in this morning can be a helpful correction for this kind of Christian, and really for all of us. It reminds us that the Christian, that the person who trusts in the Lord, and trusts in His Word, and hopes in God, should really be the most hopeful and joyful person there is even in the midst of great disaster. It reminds us why we should be the kind of people the Apostle Paul describes in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, who can rejoice in sufferings. Not rejoice absent sufferings. Not even rejoice despite sufferings. 
rejoice in them. Let's not forget that throughout the book of Zephaniah, the prophet has described the world that he lives in. And even the world as it will be after he is gone. And he has described it as a world with many, many problems. And a world that will continue to be plagued by a lot of sin. Of course, as he looks presently at the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem, he sees a nation that is covered in sin at every single level. All of its institutions are completely corrupt. He finds himself very literally alone. He he is among the small remnant of Judah who actually believes in the Lord out of hundreds of thousands of people. He's just one tiny little man. And if you can even think about the the, the times of the the prior kings before Zephaniah, the the days of the prophets like, like Elijah, the Lord had even said during Elijah's day that the Lord had kept for Himself some 7,000 people who had not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 out of hundreds of thousands. You're in the minority. And that's where Zephaniah is. As he looks around at the nation of Judah, it is saturated in sin. And not only is the nation presently corrupt, but its near future is not going to fare much better. Zephaniah is under no illusion that over the course of the next 50 to 100 years, Judah is going to see some great revival and she'll turn to the Lord and his country will then flourish forever. That's not going to happen. And he knows that's not going to happen. She will indeed have a temporary reformation under King Josiah, but the true future that she's facing, that the nation is facing, is one of exile. It's judgment. In other words, Zephaniah knows that his country is about to come to an end. God's judgments are descending upon her rapidly. We don't know anything, of course, about Zephaniah's family. But, I mean, you can imagine if he had children or grandchildren, the concerns, the the natural concerns that would be there for for your children and for your family. He's not hopeful in any way that the nation is going to turn around and that his children are going to end up living in a more righteous nation. No, he knows that they are going to face some very difficult times ahead. That they're not even going to be living in their homeland anymore. That they're going to be scattered throughout the world and exiled. He knew that his people, and if he had a family, that his family would have a difficult road ahead. And yet, the very end of the book, what do we find him saying? 
what is he calling the nation to do? Sing. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult half-heartedly. No. Rejoice, exult, celebrate with all your heart. You sing aloud. You, you belt it out. You yell when you celebrate, O daughter of Jerusalem. The book begins, of course, on a note of judgment. And yet it ends with a call to rejoice. How can that be? How do you square that circle? How do we put those things together? How can Zephaniah be calling the people to worship the Lord and celebrate and sing praises when their nation is about to come to an end? It would be the equivalent of us knowing, knowing, not having suspicions, not kind of thinking this might happen, knowing that in the very near future, the United States of America will be no more. We know it, it, it's going to come to an end through a civil war. Or we know it's going to suffer an economic collapse the likes of which no one has ever seen. Or we know uh, communist China is going to take over. We know in the next several decades it will be gone. It would be like us knowing that and then calling the people of God in that nation. Calling that nation to rejoice. Sing aloud, O people of America. How do you do that? What is causing that? How can there be hope and how can there be rejoicing when the immediate future seems so bleak? Well, what we find is that Zephaniah's hope, to use Calvin's language again, has been stretched out. It is not confined to his own day, to his own life, or even to the next few generations. It's stretched out by the whole of human history and the promises of God that have determined the end of all things. And as Zephaniah thinks, not about Jerusalem's immediate future, but her ultimate future, he's able to live as a man and to call others to live as people who are able to rejoice and celebrate and worship and live hopefully even in the darkest times. And I want you to see the things that are causing Zephaniah to be hopeful here because they are the very same kinds of things that as Christians we are hoping in. But we are to have all of our, our hopes and dreams placed in. We are to be the most hopeful kind of people even when the immediate circumstances, whatever they may be, seem so difficult. And I want you to see some of these reasons here. So look with me, first of all, at the fact that Zephaniah is hopeful 
that God's judgments will not abide on Jerusalem forever. The judgments of God will not abide on Jerusalem forever. So in verse 14, Zephaniah calls the people of Jerusalem to rejoice. And then in verse 15, he proclaims the reason why. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Again, this was not something that was going to happen in the immediate future. The immediate future in store for Jerusalem was in fact judgment. She had sinned. She had broken her covenant with God. She had become a spiritual adulterer. All of the people were idolaters and they practiced every kind of immorality. So judgment was coming. But here, Zephaniah speaks of a day beyond the immediate judgment. And in this latter day, the Lord will turn His judgments away. And he speaks of it as if it has already happened because it is such a certainty. It's it's like the Apostle Paul who speaks of us who've been called out, predestined, right? We've been justified. And and, and how does he, he end the golden chain of redemption? He says, we've been glorified. I don't feel glorified. I haven't been raised, transformed. I have a body that will die. I sin. How am I glorified? Well, it's such a certainty in God's works that the Apostle Paul can speak of it as if it's already done. That's very similar to Zephaniah here. It is so certain that the judgments against Jerusalem will not remain forever. That he can speak of it as if it has already taken place. He can call the nation to rejoice now. Knowing that those judgments will come to an end. And of course, as we think about the whole of the Bible and the story of redemption, God's judgments will not be taken away because of some arbitrary decision on His part. He will not simply decide that His people's sins are not really that big of a deal anymore and He can just ignore them and show them grace in that way. No, His his judgments will be removed only because He Himself will remove that which required them. He Himself will remove from His people the sin that necessitated the judgments of God against them. And so for God to take His judgments away implies that He will take their sin away. And that is also something that He he promised elsewhere in the Bible that He would do even in a single day. In fact, the prophet Zechariah prophesied of a day when God, through the work of His servant, the branch, would remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. 
Zechariah 3, 9. And indeed, that is what he did. And he did that through his servant, the branch, the son of David, the the root of Jesse, the promised Christ, the anointed King. He did it through Jesus. Jesus bore the wrath, the, the righteous wrath of God against sin in His own flesh as an atonement for His people. And as He hung on the cross, the curse of the law hung over Him and He became a curse for us. As Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake God made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus bore our sins on a tree and in a single day removed the iniquity of the land. Removed the consequences, the judgments against sin from His people. This is the basis for which it can be said that God will take away His judgments from Jerusalem. His city the place from which He will rule, the city which is the capital of His kingdom, was tainted with sin. But God in Christ washes her sins away so that there is no longer a reason for judgment against her. Her sins have been cleansed. Her condemnation is removed. She is made holy and now she can rejoice because God will no longer be her enemy but her Savior. He cleanses the ground. He makes it holy so that when the holy God comes to His city, it is now a holy city in which He can dwell. This is what Zephaniah is hoping in for the future, and it gives him great cause to rejoice in God. But second, and related to this, Zephaniah is hopeful in the fact that Jerusalem will be delivered from all of her enemies. He's celebrating, he's rejoicing in this future day to come when Jerusalem will be delivered from her enemies. Now, of course, as she lived in sin, her greatest enemy was God. And that's the case for anyone. It's the case for anyone who remains in their sin. They are at enmity, ultimately, with God. James chapter 4, verse 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In Romans 5, when Paul speaks of us before we came to know Christ as sinners, another synonym that he uses for that word, sinner, is also enemy. We're enemies. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. And that is the worst kind of enemy. Have God as your enemy. That is the worst. 
Because you have as your enemy the very one who upholds your life by the power of His Word. God is indeed much more of a dangerous kind of enemy than any earthly enemy may be. Because He has the power not only to kill the body, but to throw both body and soul into hell. But here, here, Zephaniah is not speaking about God as the enemy of Jerusalem, but here he is speaking about the nations, the peoples. God will deliver His people from all of those rebellious nations. Zephaniah rejoices in the fact that a day is coming when all of the earthly enemies of the people of God will be conquered and no longer will they be able to harass them. He says of the Lord in verse 15, He has cleared away your enemies. And then skip down to verse 16. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. And then he gives some additional reasons why. But then look further down in verse 19. The Lord speaks there and says, Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. This is a promise here of an earthly deliverance. The Christian hope and the hope of the remnant of the people of God under the Old Covenant is not just about going to heaven. That is a hope. We rejoice in that hope. We celebrate that hope. We, we love that hope. The Apostle Paul desired that hope. He said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Now, in heaven. He says, for that's far better. That's better than now. I want to be with the Lord in heaven. But the Christian hope is not only about heaven. The Christian hope is also about a renewed world. And the day when the earth itself will be freed from the curse and will no longer suffer under the affliction of the wicked. The promises that God made to His people then and to us even today is that the wicked will not prosper forever. A day is coming when all of those who remain in their sinful rebellion against God will come under His judgments and God will execute His justice against them in the world. He will ride forth as a conquering warrior and will strike down the nations with a sharp sword so that there will no longer be evil in the world. And this is what Zephaniah speaks of. It's what he's hoping in and rejoicing in. He's looking beyond the present moment. He's looking beyond even the immediate future. And he's looking into the future, the, the distant future of the glory that is to come. The deliverance of the people of God from the wicked nations. And as he as he thinks of that, he rejoices, knowing that the Lord will keep His Word. But then, third, and we 
seen this theme also throughout the book. The third reason for his hope and for his rejoicing is that the nations will not only be conquered, but the nations will also praise Jerusalem. They will love the capital city of the kingdom of God. Which, of course, tells us that there will be some from the nations who, of course, face the judgment of God and are judged for their sin. But there will also be some from the nations who love God, who love Jerusalem, who love His kingdom. We see this idea mentioned again at the end of verse 19 and into verse 20. The Lord says through Zephaniah in verse 19, He says, and I will change their shame. That is, the shame of Jerusalem having come under the judgment of God and being defeated by all of these nations. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Zephaniah is living in the midst of a time where to the naked eye there is no way to conceive of Judah and the nations being at peace together. Much less the nations praising her. Like as, as, he's, as he's looking around, and if I'm just making sort of scientific observations about what I'm seeing currently, it does not lead to this conclusion. That the nations will praise the people of God. That, that the nations will praise Judah and Jerusalem. And we've already seen how much conflict existed between Jerusalem and the nations of Moab and Ammon. We've seen how Assyria sought to conquer her. And even in the near future, it will be the nation of Babylon who doesn't praise her, but exiles her. Makes her a slave. And yet Zephaniah can rejoice in the midst of these days of trouble because he has stretched out his hope to see beyond what is on the immediate horizon. And he sees beyond it because his eyes are made to see not only what is right in front of him, but what God sees in His plans of redemption. His eyes see to the end of the story and his heart is strengthened by the promises of God. And so must it be the case for us, friends. We can't just be looking with the naked eye of what we're seeing right in front of us and tying all of our hopes to what we're seeing or what may come in the next 50 years or so. We can pray and long for and seek the face of God for God to do a mighty work of renewal and revival even here in this land. But that's not our ultimate hope. If something like that does not come about, if this nation goes the way of North Africa, you remember that? 
you realize that North Africa used to be the most Christian place in the world? Alexandria was the center of all Christian thought. The great church father, Augustine, who we still read and learn from today, was a North African bishop. And yet today it is dominated by Islam. If the Lord turns over a nation such as the one we are in, such as the West, to their sin, can we still rejoice in them? We should be able to. Because our hope is not supposed to be tied to what happens in the next 10 years, or the next 20, or the next 40 or 50. Our ultimate hope is in what God has promised He will do throughout the whole world. And how that takes place over time is not for us to determine. There may be times where He hands over the West to ungodliness and paganism. There may be another time where He restores it once again. There may be times where He hands over North Africa or the Middle East to paganism, to false religion and idolatry. There may be times to come after it where He restores it and the Gospel flourishes. Those are all things that He does in His own sovereign hand and purposes. But we do not find our hope in those changing seasons and times. We have to stretch out our hope to the end the knowledge of what will come. And this is what Zephaniah is doing. He is looking beyond the future. And he is seeing what he is seeing to do in the world. It is no difficult task to complain and lament over the wickedness that we see in our day. Everyone can do that. Even unbelievers for a variety of reasons, whether it's because of traditions that they hold to or religion or politics. They, they see problems in the world and they know how to complain over them. They know how to express outrage. And I don't want you to hear me wrong here. I'm not saying that there is no place to call out the sins of the world. That there's no place to lament over that There's no place to be grieved and in a certain sense to be angered. There is certainly a place for that and a biblical justification and necessity for doing so. What I am warning against is the danger to be so consumed by all the evils of the world that you live with despair and grow bitter. You forget to stretch out your hope beyond the present evils of the age and see what God has promised to come. Now, as Christians, we are to be the kind of people who even when everything seems to be going against us, and even when there are sufferings and trials, we are not consumed by despair, but consumed by hope because we know what God has already done in the world and what is to come. And if Zephaniah knew how to rejoice even when his nation was soon coming to an end because he was able to look beyond the present, how much more? 
that we who live on this side of the resurrection of Christ and who are among those very nations who praise the King of Israel, how much more should we be a people who rejoice along with Him, knowing how things will end? Which leads me to our last observation, and I think the most important. The fourth and greatest reason why Zephaniah was hopeful was because he saw a day that was coming when the Lord Himself would be in the midst of His people. Look again at what is said in verse 15. What is it that ultimately brings about this reality? where Jerusalem is no longer under judgment, where nations are praising her and she is saved from her enemies. It is the fact that at that moment, the Lord will be in her midst. Zephaniah says, the King of Israel. And notice that here. I don't want you to miss this. Who is the King? Is it David? No. Is it Solomon? No. Is it Josiah? No. Who is this king? He says, it's the Lord. The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And then look down at verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The ultimate cause for hope, the reason for rejoicing and for triumphal exultation is that a day is coming when the Lord Himself will reign as King. The Son of David who will sit on the throne forever And who will be the King will be the Lord. And that's what we see in Christ. He is the Son of God from all eternity. And according to the flesh, a descendant of David, both fully man and fully God. He is the Lord who is King of Israel. And what Zephaniah is describing here is the Lord as King reigning in the midst of His people. He sees as a consequence of that the enemies of the people of God being defeated. The nations praising the Lord and His people being saved. Jerusalem will not any longer be a place that is kissed at and shamed because of all her evil, but she will be the crown of creation because the Lord Himself will be there in the midst of her. And friends, when Jesus Christ, the Son of David and the Lion of Judah, rose from the grave and ascended on high on the clouds of heaven, He took His place on the throne at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says of Him that after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. He took now officially His position as King. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 says that God raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus Himself said to His disciples in Matthew 28, verse 18, that all authority has been given to Him in heaven and on earth. You remember also that when Stephen was about to be stoned for preaching the Gospel in Acts chapter 7, we're told in verse 55 that he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 4 of Jesus that He was declared to be the Son of God in power. Which here doesn't mean that He becomes the eternal Son of God. Son of God is the, the royal title, a description, another way of, of speaking of the Messiah. It's, it's rooted in Psalm 2. That, that psalm about the anointed king of Israel on the day of his enthronement, hearing from God Himself, saying to Him, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. It's a royal title. And Paul says that, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus, who is the Lord Himself, is also the reigning King. And right now, He reigns from the throne at the right hand of God. And you know, the Bible tells us that there's also a name for the place from which He rules. We're told it's called the heavenly Jerusalem. That's where the right hand of God is now. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 says, But you, speaking of believers, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. The throne of Jesus is in Jerusalem. The true Jerusalem. What Paul calls in Galatians chapter 4, verse 26, the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the Lord is in her midst now. But a day will come. A day will also come when that heavenly Jerusalem will remain in heaven no longer. The division between heaven and earth will be dissolved. The Lord will bring His kingdom on earth and He will rid the world of all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And when that day comes, Revelation 22, verses 3-5 to tells us, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. That is, in the city of Jerusalem. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. 
They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The Lord will be in the midst of His people. That heavenly kingdom, that heavenly throne will be established on earth. Friends, we worship now by the Spirit. We serve the Lord now in the strength of the Spirit who dwells within us. But a day will come when we will not only have the Spirit dwelling within us, but we will see the Lord face to face. We will be glorified. We will be saved from all our enemies. We will have no cause to fear, no uncertainty of the future. For the Lord our God will be in our midst, and He will be our God, and we will be His people. That is the certain hope that we have. And because it is certain and fixed in the hand of God, no matter what the circumstances that we are facing may be, we can be people who, like Zephaniah, can rejoice at all times. We can say with David, even as the nations, or the, the, the wicked are appearing to prosper, we can say even now, why are the nations raging and the peoples plotting in vain? Because we know that all of the ungodliness will amount to nothing. What we have been given and what Zephaniah was hoping in and rejoicing in and calling all of the people of God to rejoice in is what God will fix firmly on earth. His eternal kingdom. With His throne and His presence dwelling in the midst of His people forever and ever. That's our hope. And that is the ground upon which we stand and the reason why, despite whatever things we see going on in the world, we of all people cannot and should not be a bitter people a people consumed with anger and despair and outrage because we know the end. We know who wins. And we know as well that we who trust in Christ will be citizens of that very kingdom that lasts and endures forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Your Word commands us to rejoice. It commands us to have hearts that are full of joy. It commands us to celebrate even when there is darkness around us. 
And Lord, when we forget your word and forget your promises, we get wrapped up in the darkness and lose our hope. So I pray that you would stretch out our hope, that you would cause us to to both understand and recognize and delight in and anticipate and find our confidence in what you will accomplish, your kingdom on earth. And I pray, Lord, that as we look to the things that you have done and the things that you will do, that these promises will shape the very way that we live, the way that we fellowship with one another now, the way that we speak to the world even now. I pray, Lord, that we would be, of all people, a people full of hope, with that hope rooted in the gospel of Christ. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.